Okay, guys, not to bum you out, but Hedda turned 70 in August of 1970. She, she's not a spring chicken anymore, and a lot of what we know about her is a distant memory to her as well, or perhaps not a distant memory, but certainly in her past. And this is the part of the story where what I know about Hedda, I, I largely experienced firsthand, and it's going to get problematic because the way I see my great-grandmother was not the way my grandmother related to her, right? She was her daughter, and she saw her very differently. And it's also not the way my father remembers his grandmother. Memories and experiences are personal. And when one tries to do a personal history, or any history, it's really quickly obvious just how much of what we think we know is kind of influences what we're researching. And so we bias our research because of the emotional connections we have to either the subject, or the topic, or the people in the research. I didn't live in Belgium during the 1970s, and so my memories of my great-grandmother are you know, largely memories of her during our visits in the summer. I, when I was young, I lived in Brazil, and I lived in Venezuela and Mexico, and I only visited Belgium in the summer. My father had inherited, I suppose by default, the traveling or moving around gene that the rest of his family, his previous generations, had to essentially adjust to under duress. Hedda had lived most of her young adult life in Berlin. You'll remember she was sent away in 1916 to survive that horrible cold winter uh, in the Netherlands during World War I. And then in 1939, she had to leave again, we know, because of World War II, or because of the not so much World War II as Hitler's policies towards Jews in Germany. And she had her daughter sent to England, and they had all planned to emigrate to Australia, and in fact ended up in Belgium, right? Now all this moving around under duress made them for a while nationless. They were no longer considered Germans by Germany, they weren't citizens of Belgium. And even when they did become citizens, and they were very grateful to Belgium for that, they were always citizens with an accent. And so they were obviously not from there. And they were citizens that, with a memory that belonged to another place. And like many other refugees from many other wars, from many other parts of the world, before and after my great-grandparents, they would spend the rest of their life belonging and not belonging. And that was something that was very palpable to me, whether it was intentional or unintentionally presented to me. My grandmother grew up in this environment. She also had to flee Germany. She was younger at the time, and she had sort of, as you know, a tendency to sugarcoat bad memories. And Ruth considered herself Belgian by marriage, but German. And for the longest time, she remembered that house outside of Berlin that she'd left when she was 16 as if it was the most amazing house in the world. And, and like many first-generation refugees or expatriates, she elevated the homeland, the memory of the place she was from, to some ideal it probably never was. And in fact, when she visited Berlin and she visited the old house, many years later, when she was about 60, she was quite disappointed the result among her children, Hedda's, so Ruth's children, my, my father's generation, who were Hedda's grandchildren, was a significant lack of national connection. The children were all born in Belgium, but at least half, if not more, have by now moved elsewhere, and they've lived in many places. And I think this has as much to do with the world as it became in the 1970s, right? A world in which, you know, moving around is easy, with airplanes connecting everybody, where, where moving is, is cheaper, and where... Leaving one country did not mean you'd never move back or could, couldn't move anywhere else. 
For example, my aunt lived in Mauritania and Germany before settling. Another aunt lived in England and ultimately ended up in the U.S. I have an uncle who now lives in Paris. I have another aunt who is constantly moving between Italy, the south of France, and Belgium. And, and you know, the distances in Europe are small, but, you know, there's, there's sort of a lack of settling. And in all the history of all the family reunions that we ever had, especially, you know, when we still had family reunions with all generations in the 1970s, I don't ever remember anyone referring to themselves as Belgian or expressing any national sentiments for any country. That's just not part of the lore. And I think that's, you know, if you ask diaspora communities, there is there might be a connection to a land that they once belonged to, but the connection to the place they're in is 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 tenuous. It's it's just it's it's articulated differently. Now I remember that Hedda spoke to me in German, and she spoke in French to my father, and I remember her smoking cigarettes until late in her life. Um, it took me a while to figure out what exact what cigarettes exactly, and you know, you wonder why I care. But Ruth, my grandmother, smoked Dunhill Reds all her life, and she didn't smoke them intensely, but she liked the smell of tobacco. Go figure. Hedda, as it turns out, smoked Benson and Hedges. And she also didn't smoke them often. She probably also just liked the smell of tobacco. Um, but I've, I needed to know whether, you know, I haven't figured out why they smoked what they smoked. And I suspect it's just a preference. But I've always thought, you know, now that I know it, I found it sort of interesting that Hedda smoked an American brand. Right? Does it matter? Well, the details really always do. When you're doing research about anything, the devil is in the details. So if you've got a question that's itching your brain, follow it. I also remember that Hedda did not treat me like a child, but she expected all of us, adults and children, to behave when we visited her in the summer. She always had the table perfectly laid out and everything was out just as she liked it. When she spoke about my father, he was her grandson to her, not my father. And she was, I remember her, she was always standing by the window of the apartment, you know, the one with the elevator. As we arrived, she watched us get out of the car, and she was ready to ring the buzzer to let us in. So she was ready 10 minutes before we arrived, and obviously, we always were on time. And this is when the myth of the deviled eggs was first revealed to me. At these summer visits, um, apparently when my dad was younger, um, and they all lived in Brussels, once a week, he'd have lunch with his grandparents, and often a special treat when the grandchildren visited during the week were the deviled eggs. And my father mentioned the deviled eggs on a visit and how much he loved them. And in true Hedda fashion, and I just want you to sort of imagine this woman, and you've got photographs of her in the portfolio. She just, she brushed it off, you know, she was like, oh, please, those eggs, nothing special. But from that moment on, every time we visited, she'd made deviled eggs for her grandson. She didn't make them for me. She made them very clearly for him. And every time we left her place at the end of lunch, at the end of the afternoon of eating at the table and having adult conversation in her living room. At the end of the summer, when we left, Hedda would be standing at that window, that same window she'd been standing at looking at us arrive, watching us leave. Maybe she waved sometimes, but sometimes she was just standing there looking at us leave. This is not my last memory of her yet, but I do want you to be ready that we are nearing, we're nearing the end of, we're nearing the end of this century and we are nearing the end of Hedda's life, but not yet. We've got one more installment.